0: And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And his mother saith unto her, the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of purifying the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants withdrew the water, knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, But thou hast kept the good wine unto now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifest forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would use your word now in our lives. I ask that you would teach us what you meant here for us to understand, that you would use it to change us, that we would see your glory now. In Jesus' name, amen. We need to be careful as we look at this passage that we don't that we recognize that God is God and we are not. That we often come to text as selfish people. And so when we look at things, we want God to do things for us like this. Uh, we often treat that God like our sugar daddy, that he's our good luck charm. We think in terms of our own culture and time. And this passage obliterates this type of attitude and this type of way of interpreting the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to explain the text section by section and then make some interpretive conclusions and then draw out from that applications. And I say that to kind of put the cookies out there and just put all the cards on the table because I want you to know how to study the Bible for yourself. That you're not dependent on someone like me that would teach the Bible. That So observation, interpretation, application. We're going to observe what the Bible says. We're going to find out what it means, and we're going to apply it to our lives. Observation, interpretation, application. So that's our outline this morning. So if you're taking notes, you can kind of chalk them up there and put some headings there. Observations, interpretations, applications. The first thing we're going to see is here at the beginning. Uh, remember in, in John chapter 20... And he told us what the purpose of this book was, a twofold purpose, that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so an apologetic, and recognize Jesus is the Messiah, and that believing we would have life in his name. So apologetic and an evangelistic purpose of the book. And so um, he gives us here. Um, Now, I, I want you to know that whatever happened here, there are many issues that come up in this text. And I want to explain this as, as accurately as, per, as possible, and there's a lot of misinterpretations of this passage. But I want you to know, whatever happened here, it was, I'm just, my presupposition is that this is supernatural. So if you're walking into this room and you're a liberal that would deny um, a Christian um, idea of supernatural events in the Bible, we're believing this. So this isn't, because um, some liberals that would deny this is a miracle and say this is a Christianized version of one of the Greek gods of wine that's responsible for joy and the associated inebriation. You have a god for drunkenness. You know, you have a little god for everything. And so we're saying that this is a supernatural thing that, that, that the God of the universe did here. And so it says, the beginning of the signs did Jesus. In Cana of Galilee. So every good story starts off with the setting and gives you what the setting is. So it tells us the setting. The third day, verse 1, uh, was the wedding at Cana, and the mother of Jesus was there. Excuse me. So this, this is the third day. This would be the third day after what happened just at the beginning, at the end of chapter 1. That when Nathaniel and these disciples have come, John the Baptist's disciples have now been with Jesus for, for five days, the third day they've been with him. They've done a little bit of traveling, so they're in Cana of Galilee. Cana is um, far in the north of the Galilean region, very small town. Um, uh, secular uh, historians and what data we have say at the most, 500 people um, in this community, so a very small community. So a wedding like this would have been the talk of the town. Uh, and this, Jesus is coming out, as it were, in his public ministry. And his mother is there. So it's a family and friends type thing. So people would have known him. Only about nine miles from where Jesus would have grown up um, in Nazareth. So close community. Um, so family, people that would have known each other. And the context for the setting of the story is obviously the wedding. And the mother of Jesus is somehow invited to this wedding. And we could say... A little bit of speculation, we'll kind of step away from the Bible here, that because she is concerned about the lack of wine, that she may have something to do with the planning of this. Um, so maybe she's close friends and was helping them um, with the planning, so that she's concerned there. Um, she acts in an attempt to deal with a shortage of wine. And the disciples and Jesus himself are all invited. They're there. And so this suggests for us that it was probably a close family friend or a relative. And then the setting moves to a conflict, that there's a, a plot that rise, arises that they run out of wine. This would have been a cultural embarrassment, to run out of food. Uh, I mean, this isn't just a planning event for a one-afternoon wedding. This is a week-long event of, of preparations, and to run out of wine is, is um, uh, an embarrassment. an embarrassment. Um, this, and, and in this culture, it was the responsibility of the, the groom, the bridegroom, to host things. And so this is every dad who has daughters' nightmare when there's some guy that starts courting or dating or whatever you call it, dording, cating, whatever you call it, um, hunting. Um, <laughs> Um, every dad's nightmare when some guy starts showing interest in your daughter is, is this guy going to make a living? Is he going to be able to provide for her? Um, And so this is a huge embarrassment for the bridegroom to run out of wine. And so this is the problem here. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to Jesus. And she asks Jesus to do something about it. Now why would Mary come to Jesus Um, Well, evidently, uh, tradition tells us this, and we can note from inference from the Bible, is that Joseph, the physical father, not not biologically, but kind of the stepdad of of, uh, Joseph, has passed at this point. And I say that because the the scriptures um, uh, give us silence there, that we see Joseph early on, and particularly the the, um, Christmas stories of Joseph being there, but you don't see him after that. And as with, in our culture, with the, when the father would pass, the eldest son would take responsibility to look after the widowed mother. And so we see that throughout the Bible. Remember Jesus on the cross, when he would look to John to Mary, behold your mother, basically saying, I've been taking care of mom. You, now it's little brother, it's your turn to take care of mom, that, that he's dying. We see this in, um, in Matthew 13. Jesus is called the son of the carpenter. But in Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus called the carpenter. So evidently what's happened is that Joseph has passed. Jesus has uh, assumed the responsibility of head of household. He's been taking care of his widowed mother for a long time. So she is naturally inclined to run to Jesus um, with her problems. Can you imagine that in a domestic setting? He never has a bad idea. He always has the perfect solution. That's just incredible to think about. Um, and so Mary comes and asks Jesus about the wine. So it's important um, what what Jesus said to her, her and him uh, and John on the on the um, on the cross. They run out of wine. So this celebration could have lasted a week or two. The groom was responsible for financially taking care of the wedding, unlike in our Western idea where it's the bride's family that would pay for the wedding. And so all the ladies. Um, the dads with daughters in the room would say, "Amen, let's get back to that, right?" Um, so you can say, I can at least save paying for two of them that way, right? Um, You're not going to get married for a long time, are you? Okay. <laughs> um, all right. And the evidence for this is this: that in verses nine and ten, they, they don't call for the father of the bride; they call for the bridegroom. Uh, it's his responsibility. Very, the Jewish tradition is important for us to help us understand the Bible. Even the idea, so what, what would happen is the bridegroom would go and take a year of this betrothal time and prepare a plate, prepare a house for um, the bride. Then he would return and come get her. Often he'd have a party with him. Someone would blow a trumpet and someone else would shout. Then they would take the bride to the marriage. Think of any parallels that Jesus would say about his bride there. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And, and then we know from Thessalonians that when he comes, he says he's coming with the, a shout and the trump of God. And he says he'll bring us together with him. And that there's a marriage supper of the Lamb. That there's this great wedding. And there's a lot of perils. So this is an important thing. So it's very fitting that Jesus would use a wedding for his first miracle. And so this is going on here, and so we see that evidence there for that they go to the bridegroom, not to the father of the bride. And so this is the possibility of an awful embarrassment, possibly even of a lawsuit. Um, because the Old Testament viewed drunkenness, uh, the, what was going on with the wine, as a sign of God's blessings. You can see that in Psalm 104, Proverbs 3, and Matthew 26. It was a sign of God's blessings that they had plenty of wine. And so we see this plot thickening, it comes to a climax. Jesus turns and says, They've run out of wine. Mary comes to Jesus and says, They've run out of wine. And verse 4 and 5, we see the climax. Here it is. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? What have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, when we see this here the first thing that comes to our mind is, is, is almost appalling, because you're like, is Jesus being rude to his mother? I mean, what kind of guy is rude to his own mother? Right? If I said, like, hey, woman, I think, I'm 35 years old, and I think my mom would still come and smack me upside the head, and you would see the red mark through the beard. You know? Um, and so, you're, but, and so all, everything in this is like, Jesus, that's just all people. Why would Jesus say this? So then we're very quick to say, well, that was cultural. That was cultural. That was cultural. They did that, you know. Because um, we've got to explain it away. So what does this actually mean? And there's no evidence for that. Uh, even in the Old Testament, we don't see that. It would say publicly even mother. Um, so this has raised eyebrows of many people throughout the centuries, especially those that would like to elevate Mary. Um, it raises eyebrows there. And so, so the phrase seems harsh. In the King James, woman, what have I to do with thee? The, the NIV tries to soften it by saying, um, "Dear woman," but that's not what the text is saying. So we think in a very Western mind, but Jesus is a Middle Eastern culture here. Now, so there there is a little bit of difference of how you would address someone publicly versus in a home. Uh, when you're in home, you'd have a certain way of saying. But but really, the the best I can. Can reconcile this, is that it, it, it can kind of culturalize it. Is it maybe if you've been up, have ever been up in the, the Northeast, maybe you've watched old gangster movies from um, you know the, the, the 30s and forties or something like that, and and maybe a cab in New York or something like that, and, and the lady standing outside and she's getting all of her purses. Mrs. Hager's not here today, I have to tease her a little bit. Um, and getting her purses and the cab drivers waiting to get in, and he's like, Lady, get in! You know, it's kind of, you're not being rude. You're saying, "Lady, come on." You're calling her a lady, like woman, or or if you're Southern, um, "Ma'am," or maybe a country West Virginia thing, uh, you say uh, um, and saying "Ma'am," and that would probably be the the closest thing we would have, "Ma'am." But it's still it's a very formal, not an intimate woman. What have, what have I to do with thee? Um, Jesus, regardless of what's going on, Jesus is correcting his mother publicly. And I believe what he's trying to do is he is saying that Jesus is free from any human agenda or manipulation. And if Jesus' own mother couldn't manipulate Jesus to do what, use his powers to do what she wanted, neither will you. If he won't stoop to do that for his own mother, he's not going to do that for you. Now, what I kind of wonder about as I look at this is like, why does he even say this? Because then he turns around and does exactly what she's asking him to do. <clears throat> But I think he's trying to do something on purpose here. He's trying to show what the point here is. That he had entered into the purpose for his coming, and nothing, the hour, he says, my hour is not yet coming. He uses that phrase over and over, pointing to the hour of his death, that he would make atonement for our sins. Nothing is going to derail him from that. Even the family ties from his own mother. My hour is not yet coming. Whatever it is, It's super important. Um, Jesus um, was directed not by his mother nor by his brothers but by his heavenly Father. And we see this over and over and over again. The entire life of Jesus was directed by obeying his heavenly Father. I do the will of him that sent me. So the celebration ran out of wine. Jesus has indicated that, um, that, that he shows that even his mom doesn't have privilege to tell him what to do while he's on his agenda. And she's accustomed to coming to Jesus when she has problems. So I think the lesson for us is that we do not come to Jesus through family or even by his mother. So this passage particularly should make us rethink the notion... That we would go to Jesus through Mary, because she didn't even have leverage with him in this way. She called him her Savior. We we'll see at Christmas time she'll give the Mary's um, Magnificat. Um, so the celebrations run out of wine. Jesus had indicated that this is not going. That she is not. He's correcting her. Um, So here's what I want us to get from this. You don't come to Jesus, into a relationship with God through Jesus, through family. You come through faith. Jesus was constantly deferring away people that tried to pin him down about his physical family because there's an assumption. We know this corrupt politics in small towns or whatever. You think if someone's related to so-and-so and and someone's that they somehow have some kind of inside. There's just an assumption that, that, that Peter, that James and John and Mary have some kind of inside track with Jesus. Right? You just kind of assume that. And Jesus spends a lot of time in his life and ministry pointing out the opposite. I'll give you a few examples. In Luke chapter 11 there's a woman in the crowd that says, Blessed is the, the, the womb through which you were born and the breast through which you were nursed. And Jesus replies, blessed rather is him that hears my word that obeys them. So he's constantly trying to derail that because she was thinking, well, your mother must be awesome. And, and he derails, blessed rather are those that hear what I'm saying and receive the salvation by faith that he's offering. There's another one in, um, i the reference down, Mark chapter 3. Jesus goes to a place and they say, say, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says in Mark um, 3, my mother and my brother, him that believes my words is my brother. She that follows what I'm saying is my mother. Who is my, And, and he's pointing out that this faith relationship in him is so much stronger than those physical natural bonds that come in the family. And he is constantly pointing that out. And when people come with it, well, his family's got to have some inside track. And he says, no, 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 you come by faith. Now, when you hear that, it does a couple things that has some lessons for us. One is this, that we need to recognize that our faith family is a thicker thing than even blood family. And some people don't like to hear that. On the other side, this is very good news. This is very good news. Because no matter how messed up your family is, you can come to Jesus. No matter who your dad was, when, no matter how many life sentences in prison, if your dad's in prison, no matter what, no matter how messed up your family is, you can come to Jesus. You don't have to put, up, put on something else to, to, make, to have a better version of you. Because we struggle with this with our identity. Because there are some people in here that might be clinging to, oh, my family this, and my grandpa this, and I should have an inside track to heaven because of my family. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. But there are other people here that are like, oh, my word, I don't have a shot. Have they been lying to you all those years? Is he really your dad? Why don't I look like her? Is that my mom? You know, I I had a buddy in college that found out, like our sophomore year in college, that what he thought had been his dad for 19 years was not his dad. That, that messes with somebody's head, you know? Um, and, and, and you know what? This is, the gospel is saying, you come to Jesus' family. Not, come to Jesus, not my family, but my faith in Him. And so we need to recognize and remember this, that there is a need for a personal relationship with Jesus, and that your personal relationship with Jesus supersedes family. Family's awesome. Family's great. Family is a priority and a stable of society and biblically as well. Marriage is super important. The fact that Jesus uses a wedding as a picture of his relationship with his church, he's condoning it. He highlights it. He says it's honorable. He I mean this is there's a reason this is cited often in marriage manuals of Jesus at this wedding. It is uh, and, and and it's it's elevating something. But it's not just a party, it's a covenant. And you come together, and it's not just about you and sorry, girls. It's not about you. It's not your day, okay? You get to be the, the one of the primary actresses, but it's about Jesus showing off his covenant with his people. Um, and, it's a, and it's this covenant that's being, and it's this miracle. And that's why it's a, a, two people making covenant before others that are participating in that. And they're coming in and witnessing to it. That's why it's so important. And I'll, by the way, this is one of the reasons why I would not attend a same-sex so-called same-sex wedding. Because there is a sense, particularly in our old, um, um, the, the old manuals from the common prayer, the, the, the vows would say, if anyone can show just cause why these two should not be lawfully married, let him speak now, forever hold his peace. Well, this is not a biblical marriage. This is not right. I can't be there condone that. I love them. And and I have gay friends. And I will have supper with them and have coffee with them and tell them how much I love them. But I'm not going to help condone sin any more than I would condone someone else's adultery or addiction to pornography. Um, we love people. And if you're here and you're struggling with same-sex attraction, you're welcome. And and, and I have friends that, I, I talk, that, that, that are in that boat as well, so it's not a homophobic thing at all. It's a Bible thing. Every one of us worst sin is our disbelief in Jesus. And, and mine is no better or no worse than anyone else's. Uh, and for those of you that that bothers you, you know when every time Jesus and the, or Paul in the New Testament mentions homosexuality in Romans 1, it lists it up there with these other really, really, really bad sins. Like disobeying your parents, kids. Jesus lists them the same That's a sign of a reprobate mind. Being unthankful. Um, And so marriage is super important. I need to get back on track. Um, So... Let your family be gospel-centered. Enjoy your family this week, but center it on Jesus. Share Jesus. Jesus is about taking people outcasts into his family. So if there's someone down the street, holidays can be very hard for people that are going through a divorce or have a split family or maybe they aren't. uh, We we live in kind of an abnormal area, and there's a lot of people that have family and children and grandchildren around by. That's not normal. Um, And so there are other people that don't have kids and parents nearby and find them and say, hey, come on over. Join us. And, and, and that might be a test. Well, I can't imagine that. So is your family an idol or is it an expression of the gospel and to, together? And that might be something to kind of think on there. And so um, we, so that's the conflict. Now the resolution is this in verse 7. You see in verse 7 the, the resolution comes into being. Now Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. Okay? Not, not almost so that they could trick and put some wine and let it dilute down, but to the brim so that there was no question, draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast, the maitre d' if you would, Then whoever's the commander of this, the kind of the head waiter, and they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and, and did not know where it came from, but the servants that were drawing the water knew, the, the master of the feast called the brine groom and said unto him, every man at the beginning sets forth the good wine, and when the guests had well drunk then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. So the the natural thing was that you put the good stuff out first and then it's kind of like we do that today. You have people come over and and they eat. And you serve what you prepared and they keep eating. And you're like, man, we're running out of food. you start going to the leftovers that are in the fridge and heating them up and saying, okay, what else? Especially if you have teenage boys come over. It's just like, okay, that's been in there. Look, uh, scrape the mold off. Eat it off, give it to them. You know what I mean? Just Whatever. (laughs) You know, we do that as well. Um, nothing changed. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. But verse 6 points out something particular, that these pots, this was not wine skins or the clay, the things, this was stone pots. Remember? Because it, it wouldn't get contaminated with the earth, the materials of stone. These were used for the purpose of purifying. There's a purification ritual that would always go on. And Jesus deliberately chooses those wines... Stone doesn't contaminate like earthenware does. Each jar um, holds two or three measures, or uh, eight or nine imperial gallons. That's a lot of liquid. Together they hold 100 to 150 gallons. (laughs) Or if you're from Europe, 500 to 700 liters. And the scripture tells us that this is wine. It uses the word for wine. The same word for wine is used everywhere else in the New Testament. So if our, and I'm just saying what the Bible says, I'm not making this up, I'm just the man. The mail's already written. If you, like, say, well, I can't believe Jesus would turn the water in an alcoholic beverage. Your problem is not with me. Your problem is with the Bible using the same word. It's not a special root for welches in the Greek. Okay? It's the same. Um... And what the Bible says is more authoritative than what you think. What really matters in the end is not my opinion or your opinion but what the Bible actually says. But, so everybody that's having a little party in your head right now and saying, guess where I'm going? Well, it's Sunday. I can't buy that now. But, but tomorrow, you know, everybody's doing that in their head right now. And defense attorneys are getting their business cards out. <laughs> This is not, merely, is not merely grape juice, but it is not a table wine that we would buy today, either. We're often t- we're conservatives like myself are, are tempted to interpret this as grape juice, but it is the fruit of the vine. It is, not, it is, it is wine, it's not just Adam's ale, as some people would like to say, and just water. But, um, verse 10, and, and if you if you interpret it that way, then you have a really big problem with verse 10 because it says when they have well drunk. When they've got a little tipsy. They're bringing the better stuff out. That, you don't normally do that. So how do you interpret that part? If you, if you mess that, do that in the latter end. But it's not modern wine either. See, in the ancient world, you couldn't just drink the water. And you couldn't keep grape juice from getting fermented because you didn't have refrigeration. You couldn't just drink the water so you had to... Um, and you couldn't just drink straight up wine because... It, it, was, it would be nasty. It was lots of different fruits together. It was just bitter. And so you mixed it. You watered it down. And so different scholars would tell us anything from one part to three, one part wine to three parts water to one to ten, uh, to water, watering down the fermented string. So basically, unless you had a really bad bladder problem, it would take a long time for you to get drunk off this stuff. Okay? Something much less strong than American beer. This is um, Beverages with alcoholic content that we would have as what we would call our wine today would have a different word in the Bible, particularly used in the book of Proverbs, called strong drink. That was for the purpose of inebriation, drunkenness. And the Bible speaks much more negatively about that. And it's sad that I even have to mention this, because this is even part of what the text is talking about. This is a nice sidetrack. Okay? But because it comes up and we live in the world we do, we will. So, I said that, so some people are thinking, woo yeah! But I want to tell you what the Bible, we need to let the Bible speak where the Bible speaks, and let the Bible speak in the balance that the Bible speaks. Because the Bible would give prohibitions towards drunkenness. The Bible's always against drunkenness. Not forbidding the use of alcohol, but strongly cautioning. So, Proverbs 23, verse 20. Do not mix with wine bibbers. Or with gluttonous eaters of meat, I will just say this: just going to say, the Bible always couples drunks and gluttons together. Just saying, okay? I don't know. I just ruined our lunch now. Okay? <laughs> Verse twenty-one, harvest twenty-three. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe the man with rags. Isaiah 5 verse 11. Woe to those that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink. Excuse me. An intoxicating drink, strong drink. Who continue until night till wine inflames them. You say, well, Jason, those are all Old Testament things. Okay, let's go to New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5. Speaking of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, by comparison, be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Well, when someone is drunk and driving, they are labeled as driving under the influence, D-U-I. And so to be filled with the Spirit, you should be able to be accused of having an L-U-I. Of living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, I, I hope you get accused of that. I hope you get um, prosecuted for LUIs, for living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Be not drunk with wine, as it says. Galatians chapter 5. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And so all this is summed up for us when it tells us in Proverbs 20 verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. The Bible strongly cautions this. And so I want to speak. With the balance that the Bible speaks, okay. We'll talk about that later. So we'll go to verse eleven now. It gives us the reason for all this is why all this has happened here. The reason is given to us here at the beginning. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee. The beginning of miracles did Jesus. He did this here. John identifies this as a sign, not necessarily as a miracle in the modern sense. Because, and I think this shows us what the purpose of miracles are. A sign is more than just a wonder. It is something that's pointing out. Remember, it's to point out that Jesus is the Messiah. And you will see, that if you you took the Bible and took like a, a, a timeline and clumped up when you saw a lot of miracles or abnormal things happen, they are almost always around transitional times in history. So the children of Israel going from Egypt to the promised land. Lots of miracles happening take place there. Do you see this going on when they come back from Babylon, back into World, or things are going in the Maccabean time, or here at Jesus, when Jesus is establishing his church and his kingdom, he's coming as a Messiah, and then when the church begins after Pentecost, and you see the tongues and healings and things like this. So other than that, you don't see a lot of miracles, per se, uh, but in the technical sense of something out the normal happening all the time. So let that be an encouragement to you that you're like, man, I've been a Christian for 35 years and I haven't seen you know, stuff like this happen. Because that's not, God normally works through what the Bible calls providence. As we looked at it in Esther. Um, miracles, and so he's doing this here as a, as a, as a sign to point out who he is. And it's for the purpose of manifesting His glory. Now I want to make a side note here. Did Jesus do miracles as a child? There are some apocryphal books that would say, and they give stories about that. Hiding with His kids and His friends and disappears. But this text, and I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, verse 11, this beginning of miracles. You know what beginning means? It started there. It didn't start before, right? Okay, so it means what it means. What's that mean in the Greek? It means the beginning, the start. Okay, so did Jesus do miracles as a kid? No, you can't have a beginning if you're doing it before, right? So it's easy. So that is your Bible trivia fun for the day. But he tells us this the purpose of this was to manifest for his glory. Now, that word glory should, should, should ring some bells in your head. That um, the glory, the God, that you see in the Old Testament, always talking about the glory of God in the, the, the pillar on the mount, in the ark, the glory, the God, the weight of God, His excellence, everything about Him, the glory of God in the Old Testament. And John is showing that that glory is attributed to Jesus as the Messiah. This is Him. So what does this mean for us? So um, it, it means for us several things. Jesus is leaving Jewish tradition. We'll go through, through this and put the, the text up here. Um, I've some slides for you. This is the beginning of the miracles. Um, okay. Lessons that this story teaches us. Jesus is leaving Jewish tradition. He is pointing towards a better wedding that is coming up. He takes what they use to cleanse themselves, these pots for purification. He takes these purification pots that they would use to cleanse themselves and uses that to put the wine in it. Basically saying, you don't get clean from washing your hands and doing a bunch of religious rituals. You get clean. But what's wine always picture in the New Testament? The blood, Right? You come by the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's moving this tradition, all this religious ritual and stuff like this. He's saying, don't need that anymore. I'm the Messiah. I'm turning the water to wine. I'm going to use the purification pots to do it. Because I'm going to point. Jesus has a unique relationship with wine in the New Testament. He takes it, he uses the water of the wine. He uses it at the Last Supper with his, well, looking at the Passover and towards what the New Testament church is supposed to do. And he gives us this promise as we look forward. He says, I'm not going to take of the fruit of the vine until I do it with you all in the kingdom during the millennium. Jesus has a unique relationship with wine in picturing this. He's going to do it with us. He's going to partake again at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the other thing I think is good for us to see is that the wine is abundant; it's there for all. It doesn't run out. Now, this shows the empty state of Jewish worship. It, that the symbol of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper, is the wine. So, there's a few other things that aren't necessarily clear that this, this passage teaches us: that God's resources are abundant; ours are limited. Our resources run out. Jesus don't. Jesus meets people's needs. He focuses on their needs. Not necessarily for for them, but for him to get glory, to point to himself. And another thing I think this passage teaches us is that Jesus doesn't let human pressures distract him from his mission, even that of his mother's. God's resources are exceedingly abundant. Our resources run out. His don't. Jesus will meet needs, but he's not going to meet your needs just for you to have a health, wealth, and prosperous life. He's there for his own glory, and you're good. Jesus doesn't let human pressure distract him, even that of his own mother. You don't come through family, you come through faith. There's so some applications of this for us. I want you to get this, especially as we have a holiday week coming up season and a meal after our service, that God is not against fun. The fact that Jesus' first sign of Messiahship was at a wedding, a social event, to prevent an embarrassment, a social embarrassment, shows that it's important to him. And so, Jesus is pretty far removed from some type of monastic asceticism. He's not starting a new order of monks that are celibate. Okay? That don't have any fun. And this is what people think of as Christianity. and I want you to stop letting them think that, okay? So smile, okay? I saw in a bank one time that it increases your face value. okay? Um, <laughs> smile. Let your, I mean there, there's something to this um, that this is why people have this idea. Oh, you got to turn into Eor to go to church, right? I think another thing that's second here is that a lesson, uh, application is that leisure time and social events can be used for godly purposes. Jesus is on mission to save the world. Really important, right? And he takes time for social occasions. Dads that are busy, get this. I'm preaching this to myself. Okay, we think we have stress and we're busy. Oh, I don't the time, to do this with the kids or that with the kids. Okay, how about the weight of the world and bearing the world's sin? It's kind of stressful, right? Okay? Yeah. Starting a worldwide movement, a global enterprise, that's what Jesus is doing here. And he has time to go to a wedding and partake of the meal and have a little fun with it. So I think this condones something like that. It's part of the mission. I don't think Jesus would skip a church dinner saying, well, I didn't come for food. I came for the Word of God. I'm not going to that dinner after the service. Now, if you have a reason you got to leave, don't, I don't want you to feel guilty. But if you're kind of thinking that, I don't think Jesus would be like that. I don't think Jesus would be like, the church is having a movie in a couple weeks. That's terrible. I'm not staying home. They had a game night last month. I can't believe that. Uh, Jesus made time for that. And I think he'd be the first one, if he were, and he is, if he were here right now, and he is. To say, you need to come to those social events, you need to come to those picnics. And you and social stuff is important in the life of the church. I think this is a little bit of an amen to that, by like the fact that Jesus is using this as one of his signs. The first sign. Little things are important. It's not about all about the big event at the end. All these little signs, all these little things point up to what Jesus did, in his glory. He was glorified through a social event. Um, n- another thing here. Um, when the disciples saw the miracle, they believed. It had a evangelistic that they believed, that they were uh, they're grounded. He he is saw that they're seeing this, that he this was the goal of the miracle. Remember, the whole book is the point to this. Now, the goal, the, to show them that Jesus has power. He is sovereign over the material universe. All the elements and those of you that know science better than what I do, than, than me, that he's able to take H2O and turn it into whatever chemical combination wine is, he's able to do that. He is sovereign over the material universe. He's in control of it. And then I think there's some gospel applications for us here. Jesus did not take old wine presses and put new in. He used pots for purification. There's a principle there for church revitalization too. That you don't take the old wine skins and put new wine in because they burst, right? So, so sometimes you have to say, Jason, why are you guys trying new stuff around here? Because don't put old, new wine in old wine. Press. You, don't, you don't take a system that failed and put something new in it and expect, and that's the definition of insanity. To try the same old thing with expecting a different result. Um, Jesus makes things new. So no matter how messed up your life is, no matter how messed up your family is, no matter what, what all the stuff you brought into in church with you, and I'm not talking about the, the cleaned up you that threw a mint in to cover up the alcohol on your breath and put some cologne on so no one sells, smells the smoke and dressed up a little special way or whatever. I'm talking about the real you. That he wants to make you new he wants you to come to him just as you are. And he says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. All new ones. All of him. They're the gospel. All things become new in the gospel. And so I want to ask you as we close, my friends. Why wait until everything else runs out? before you try God, Why wait till it's all gone? Why wait till the end of this life and you know you're not happy with everything this world offers you? Why wait till the end? Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to accept Christ. Why say the best until last when you have a relationship with God? So kids that are in this room, teenagers that are in this room, Don't think that you're like, you know, I want to have a lot of fun in life before I want to serve God. You know, I I want to make sure I have a good time in college, and then I'll get right, you know, settle down, get a family, and do the whole church thing. Why wait till the end? The best is what he's offering you. Jesus wants you to have life, and life more abundantly. He knows how to throw the best parties with the best wine, with the most fun. And I'll tell you what, if you want to look for the happiest people, they're going to be the people that are serving God with their life. In every area. And, and I'm not telling you what the drive-by media says and drives the word out, but I'm talking about like real studies, real metrics. When you look at uh, emotional state, happiness in marriage, satisfaction physically in marriage relationship, it is always evangelical Christians that are serving God that have the highest in those, in those areas. Because Jesus gives life and life more abundantly. Now, I'm not going to promise you and Jesus wouldn't either that if you come to Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. But it will say he'll put new wine in, in you. And you'll be washed in the blood and you'll have Christ in your life. You don't have to wait until the end. So let's have a word of prayer. And then we will um, respond to God's word. Father, we thank you